All right, City Council Member Joe Borelli, thanks for joining us again. You're, You're welcome. All fired up. You are talking with us in between uh, a groundbreaking in your district and a fundraiser for your public advocate campaign. With White Claw, because with there White ain't Claw. no laws when you're drinking claws, <laughs> except there are very strict public finance uh, laws that we, have to, <laughs> we do have to follow. But outside of the campaign finance board system, there ain't no claws when you're drinking claws. Right. You had to adjust your open right. bar. Uh, listing for the fundraiser. Uh, remind our listeners who you are, where you come from, the district you represent. So uh, I am Joe Borelli from the 51st Council District, the one of the only council members probably who can mountain bike and bass fish and sit at a beach uh, and hike in a, in, in, in a, a park of woods that's so silent that you can actually not hear any other vehicle. And I think that makes my little area unique. And I think it's produced a kind of odd and sometimes unique council member. And this is the South Shore. South Shore, Staten, Staten Island, Island, baby. And how do you describe your politics? Uh, I would say I'm a moderate. I mean, I don't think most other people would say that. I think, I think, uh, folks. Um, I don't know if that was a joke. No, no. I, th I think I, I would be uh, billed as a conservative. Um, although, hey, I swing, I swing some ways on some issues. We were just talking about micro mobility and Ubers, yeah. and you know, I, I can't wait to get on my. My new scoot. Yeah. When, uh, when we finally you were riding e-scooters before they were before they were legal. cool. Before they were cool. Yeah. Right. Right. So you're running for public advocate. I am. What's that all about? Why are you running? You want to minimize the office, but but why? Well, I mean, I, I, you're I, in the city council. You can run in the special election without mm -hmm. losing your seat. But why are you why are you running? Number one, I have fun running for office, uh, and I think. Maybe people wouldn't start by saying that. They'll give you a canned answer. But frankly, uh, you know, marathon runners will run a 5K for fun sometimes. And I think for me, uh, you know, this is a really uphill fight. This is a 7 to 1, 6 and a half to 1 uh, Democratic enrollment. So, I mean, I'm doing this because I enjoy doing it. And I enjoy beating uh, a drum a little differently than the other guy. And I think with me and Jumani Williams, it's pretty, pretty clear uh, that we both uh, have diverging views on a lot of issues. And, you know, he's someone that supported Bill de Blasio for mayor. I mean, I think this is the only function of the job is to be a bully pulpit and direct your, your bullseye, which you probably can't say anymore, but, but put your bullseye on the mayor. And I think it's better to have someone who fundamentally disagrees with most stuff the mayor does. Um, you know, and look, there's no, there's no Republican and conservative way of, of cutting the grass, uh, the, old, the old saying goes. But the mayor does want to implement progressive policy. He's not very good at it. He's, as, as we see, and maybe we'll talk about it later in, in the 2020 debates, he's a much better conveyor of progressive thought than implementer of progressive policy. Um, and as the public advocate, I could do a pretty good job, you know, treating him as my human punching bag. So given that as your lens on the job of the public advocates before Williams, how do you rank them? How do I rank them? I, well, you got to give Green credit because, he, you know, he... he developed it from nothing, right? So the, the powers come from the charter. The charter doesn't even give it its own section. The charter doesn't say much of must, public advocate must, right? It doesn't, it doesn't give them the, the, the great seal of the, the exchequer or something like that. It's no guidance. The public advocate may do this, should do that, could do that. Uh, and he made it into something. The problem is the powers continually got eroded away. You know, when you have someone like Betsy Gottbab, who, who genuinely didn't do anything. I, I'm not saying she did anything bad or did anything good. She, she, wasn't, she wasn't even out there. Um, by those standards, a person who is, is using it as a springboard for, for a future office is probably more effective as whatever the, however you gauge public advocates. Um, but, I, I mean, yeah, I would say go, go, go green, I guess. I, Tish, I, I, I like Tish personally. And, and, and Tish um, was a, a person, an elected official, who took time to go to every single neighborhood, every single constituency, 
and I give her credit because she didn't change her message, but she was one of the most approachable elected officials I've ever dealt with in my life, and I think that's why when you go to Tottenville, people ask me, oh, when's Tish coming back? She came to the restaurant a couple weeks ago. But so. she didn't hold de Blasio's feet to the fire. No, no, no. But, but again, you, you're just talking about doing press conferences, right? When we talk about holding feet to the fire, you're talking about press conferences. Um, and no, I think it's a fair criticism to say that, that she, uh, she went soft on a lot of issues. How was de Blasio as advocate? Uh, public advocate Bill de Blasio, in my opinion, was a lot better than, than Mayor Bill de Blasio. Um, he was very uh, helpful on a number of issues. We had uh, a bunch of autism programs at one particular public school uh, in my district, the one I actually went to as a kid. And um, he uh, was on the front lines with us fighting for. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame that that guy uh, is now uh, delusionally thinking of running for president. You and Jumani Williams, that's the election. How, how do you describe, other than that he in the past has supported Bill de Blasio, although he's had some pretty harsh things to say more recently, uh, any other ways you sort of characterize for people the differences? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I think if you million, right, if you, I think if you go down the checkbox of issues that are affecting New York today, I think you would see, with the exception of the SHSAT, I think I think he and I are actually on the same page uh, on that uh, to some degree. Um, but I think most other controversial, hot topic, hot button issues now we're on on different sides of it. And look, I, I'm not always right. I'm, I'm the you know I'm okay admitting that. Um, but I think someone should be addressing things from an alternate point of view and offering an alternative vision for the city. I don't think Jumani Williams does that uh, in a way that I could do that when we compare ourselves to the mayor. So I think there have been so far seven citywide elections for public advocate. Ever? Ever. No, more than that. It had to be. 93, 97, 2001, 2005, 2019, 2013, 2017. Okay. So, well, okay, yeah, okay. So, um, and a Republican... I didn't know this was a counting a show. Republican, this is... yeah. Failed that test. <laughs> a Republican has never come within a country mile of... Uh, winning that race. If you're asking me what my plan is to win, I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, but it's... Look. But no, I mean, more not just your plan, but why Why is that? I mean, Republicans have won mayor, obviously. There, there's a lot have... more uh, institutional... Not institutional. There, there's a lot more investment in our mayoral candidate. Um, and that's just a matter of life. I mean, you know, I, I have a hard time, and maybe I'm a bad politician, uh, I have a hard time asking people to dig deep into their pockets to support me for running for public advocate. I probably won't make the matching funds. I just have a hard time convincing people that, that number one, I value their support of me. Number two, um, I'm, I value, I, I think they value my honesty. And I tell them it's an uphill race. So you want to come to a party tonight for a hundred bucks and have some white clothes? Great. Am I going to dig into somebody and say, hey, I really need it. I'm, I'm, I'm this close. It's going to, and, and, and the other reality is it's not going to change anything. So if I'm the public advocate and you are a person, you know, uh, who cares about whatever, I just was speaking to the, the woman who runs the Pride Center on Staten Island, so you care about LGBT issues. As a public advocate, what am I going to do to change it? Am I going to help fund her group? Am I going to change policy in the city? No, I'm going to do none of that. Maybe I'll just show up and cut a ribbon. So it's, it's, it's tough to gain support for, for the office. Sounds like you would rather the office just not exist. No, I'd rather the office be something or be nothing. Well, on LGBT issues, you, you could call out the mayor for not... Right, not, right, Z, right. But but that doesn't actually. Th there's not a responsibility. Mm -hmm. Council members, the comptroller, um, every I mean every elected official in in the state, really, other than the public advocate, has a part of their daily work as doing the press and and and, and drumming up uh, support on issues, and they have some sort of actual responsibility in governing. And most good politicians leverage one against the other and and, and advance their agenda. 
there's no question that I would be more powerful in my current role as a city council member than I am as a public advocate. There's, there's no objective way to say it's not. I mean, you just can get more, more headlines. Um, the public advocate, in my opinion, and this will take the work of the legislature and the council, is to, to place the public advocate in charge of DOI. So we can't have a... Uh, Department you know, of Investigation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can't have a fire Robert Mueller situation like we did. Um, we, we would also, in my opinion, is to also put a seat, an ex officio seat, um, on most of the boards that actually govern more and more of the lives of New Yorkers. The, and, and for the most part, they're unelected boards. I mean, you know, you can go from, I mean, it, so the, the PA has a seat on the City Planning Commission now. But, you know, the, the water board, you know, the, the, the small things. The, the big things, like the MTA, I mean, that would take state legislature, uh, the state legislature. Um, and, and there's a host, a TLC. I mean, there's, there's more of the things that actually govern the, the, the styrofoam, you know, bans, like who's enforcing it. Like, like, these are all boards and commissions doing that. And I think having one publicly elected representative on those boards would be a good for society and good for the public. Uh, th if that doesn't happen, then I would support the same legislature and the same city council or, or whatever um, revising the office itself. And that would mean to eliminate it because there is, um, we don't even know how many cases the public advocate gets, but if we just compare them to the city council, say, we, we, we do a fraction of the near 40 million calls 311 does. And 311 does a pretty good job. I call 311. I'll show you my 311 app. Yeah, I've, I've wondered that. Why we have, three, why, yeah, what's the what's the point of calling the public advocate? 311 is great. You get a tracking number. They usually get back to you in like a week. You know, you, you, it's not only the answer you want, but it's, it's a pretty efficient system to handle 40 million calls, and it costs about $39 million. Public advocate, we spend about $2.5, $3 million. We have no idea how many calls they get. And what's the point? As public advocate, I don't know an issue better than Donovan Richards. In, if it's an issue happening in Southern Queens. If you need the help of someone personally, call Donovan Richards. We have a full council state that these people know and, and well, again, up. like you said, it's about the accountability aspect. Right. If Donovan Richards isn't getting the job done out there, call the public advocate maybe. Well, who's going to do nothing? Okay. Let's zoom out? Yeah. yeah. Zoom out. All right. So let's get back to this issue of, as Jared just brought up, Republican uh, success, failure, viability. Let's talk New York City first. We want to go to the state level as well. But what's your assessment? Where... Where's the Republican Party at in New York City right now? Look, I think, you know, I, I think the Republican Party uh, has long talked about rebuilding and attracting new voters. I think um, that not since we've had Mayor de Blasio has there been the actual opportunity to do so. I think, you know, the, the mayor is the most uniting mayor we've ever had. I mean, no matter where you go, people don't seem to like him. Um, you know, if, if you had asked me where is de Blasio's core strength and base, you could say maybe demographically with black voters, uh, maybe geographically in, in his home, you know, neighborhood of Park Slope. But is the support really there? Not, not really. It's not like if you come to the South Shore of Staten Island and, and people, I think, genuinely do like me and, and, and know me by name and, and will tell you things I'm doing. And I think it's replicated probably in 51 districts around the city. But he, um, he has, and I think the chancellor is helping him so much, and that's probably the best example, but he has opened up opportunities for us to attract new groups, uh, and not in the way that Democrats have done it in the past, where they, uh, you know, basically try to use uh, demographic brokers to attract, you know, people in their, in their big tent, you know, so who's the leader of a, of a, of a certain church or, or a rabbi or whoever, try to bring the people in. We're attracting right now Asian voters because they don't like the rhetoric that's coming out of the chancellor and the mayor on the SHSET and other issues. So 
we're still being ourselves. And just because people like de Blasio and people who are so progressive, they're so woke, they're, they're, they're asleep. You know, they, they are giving us this opportunity to find new people. Um, you know, we start looking at people like homeowners, and it doesn't matter whether they're black, brown, or purple. They don't want their property taxes to go up. They want to be in it because now they're tied to their home. They want their schools to be safe. They want their parks to be safe. It's a different voter and a different person than the current Democratic bloc is catering to. There's our opening. Just to pick that apart a bit, so the, your description of sort of how Democrats amassed power in the city, is it really uh, racial down, politics, ethnic politics? I mean, is it really down to, is, is the attachment of black voters to the Democratic Party solely about the fact that Democrats ran uh, candidates of color, or is it because of the civil rights movement and some ideological and politics? No, I, I think it's old school uh, racial urban politics. I mean, I think, and I think we're having that conversation right now openly about who's running for mayor and who will be the leading black candidate. And because there is an assumption that demographics and, and, and um, ethnic identity plays a role in politics. There's no question about that. So I, I just don't think we're approaching it in the same way as looking at a black person as a black person who should be treated in a certain way because they're a black voter, rather than looking at that same person as a voter, or as a homeowner. Right? Uh, uh, look at them as who they are outside of their ethnic identity and try to find common ground where they care about. The example I gave of, of the Asian population is probably the, the, the best example right now. I mean, these are people who, with respect to the SAT, believe they're going in the right direction, believe they're doing what, what we're supposed to do, the American dream, the whole thing, and they feel like they're being left behind. And we're not singling them out. If anything, the chancellor's sing singling them out. Um, we're accepting. So, so that's so that's on that policy, but on a whole bunch of other you know policies, it doesn't necessarily seem like the New York City. I mean, how, how is the New York City you know Republican Party reaching more voters? I mean, you you've had this position on SHSAT that, as you say, might be very appealing to to mm -hmm. Asian New Yorkers. Um, are you reaching homeowners of of whatever color ethnicity on? Yeah. You know, the other avenue that I, that I do personally, and I think other, and there's so few of us, I think there's seven of us now left, um, but other Republican elected officials and wannabes really have to start looking at the opposite of what progressive activist groups are saying and how the community actually feels about it. I, I ride a bike, I like bike lanes, I, I think they're a generally good thing, but I was, I was campaigning in, uh, in the west side of Manhattan, the heart of progressivism, and the number one complaint that I got there was the bike lane. I forget which street it was on, but, but a bike lane coming. Hundreds of people showed up at the, at the community board. There was obviously an organized pro-bike lane group there. And everyone else felt like they were just random people who actually worked or lived in the, in the neighborhood. And they felt like they were being ignored. And again, this is the heart of American liberalism. This is the Upper West Side. If there are people who are disaffected with progressive activists, I'm not saying they're going to be Republicans. But they might be New York City Republicans. They might entertain a Mike Bloomberg again. They're not going to entertain me for mayor. I, I, don't, I don't expect them to. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's a really realistic proposition. Um, but they might entertain a moderate mayoral candidate at some point who is more back to basics and less about who are the squeaky wheel advocate groups. What's the difference, though? I mean, what's... What is the difference between you and and uh, Mike Bloomberg? I mean, you when I, I asked looks better looks. <laughs> when I asked you 
about your politics, you know, the first thing you said was moderate. I mean, that we all laughed a little bit right, about right, that. Right. But, like, I mean, I think most people uh, who know you know, you know, you were an early yeah. Trump endorser. We can get back to that later. But, yeah. you know, there's other ways that that's been more clear. You said people would probably call you conservative. But, I mean, what do you... What are you so against or what are you so for that you that Republicans in New York City can't reach those voters? I mean, you know, or let's yeah, let's yeah, go a, away from a, the Upper West Side. Right, right. But but even, you know, again, more moderate, not conservative Democrats, but even more moderate Democrats or even sort of liberal, not uber progressives. But well, you know, take another issue in public schools. Right. There is a prevailing belief in the public schools uh, from Chancellor Farina and now, now through Carranza that disciplinary actions are disproportionately impacting students of color and suspensions are, are down uh, as, uh, as a result of implementing a new policy. And I, I hear a lot of complaints about that from parents who are not of the same mindset where they don't want the bad apple in the class uh, to be just sort of slightly reprimanded. They, you know, there are many people, believe it or not, who think that the other 28 kids in the class are just as, if not more important, than the one bad apple who's going to be repeatedly disruptive. So it, 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 it's, it's, tough to, like, it's tough to come up with a list off the top of my head, but it's issues like that where progressive wokeness and the idea that, that suspensions are what's, what is the problem in, in very troubled middle school, say. It just doesn't jive with most rational parents who are just angry that the disruptive student in their kid's class is not being segregated somehow from them so the class can go on. Um, and I, th I think, you know, when you start peeling away at different issues, you find there's a lot of, a lot of room between activist thought and actual there, there thought. There probably is, but then you get into some of the, I guess, big litmus test issues of like, the minimum wage, right? Sure, yeah. Reproductive rights, you know, other yeah, issues. Look, I mean, I, I was, I wasn't even. Look, know, I was about look, to say, you know, marriage look, equality, but that's pretty much. Yeah, the I mean, past there, there are, there are, you know, there are gray area issues where I think there is always room for. Con when you talk about a minimum wage, right? Republicans aren't saying we shouldn't have a minimum wage. I mean, some probably are, but 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 most Republicans aren't saying we shouldn't have a minimum wage. The fight is always should it go up this quick at this time, whatever, whatever the number is going to be. Um, but you're right. There, there isn't much wiggle room on abortion. You know, you're either, you know, have you ever seen a politician try to explain that they're pro-life, but they're kind of pro, I mean, it, it, they sound ridiculous. You know, I'm, I'm against abortion, unless if it's in the third week and it's a Tuesday and, and you know, the sun, it's like, you sound like, like an idiot. It's an issue where, you know, you're, you're either black or white, you know. Um, unfortunately, you lose people that way. I mean, there's no, there's no way to skin a cat. You lose people. But Mayor uh, Bloomberg was, like I said, a moderate Republican. He, when he was a Republican, he was a pro-life mayor. Uh, Giuliani, pro-life mayor. Um, you know, both had, you know, much better records on LGBT issues than the broadly, broadly national Republican Party. Um, so that, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean. Does that mean the, the calculation you're talking about could be interpreted as Republicans' path to powers to tapping into uh, resentment. Do you think that's... But that's, 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 the, that's the model for any party that's not in power. You know, that's, that's not unique to, to Republicans in this city. I mean, if you go to Democrats in Kansas, they're probably saying how bad things are in Kansas. And that's how they're actually... I think they, they, they picked up the governor. Well, it's, a, it's a combination, right, of resentment and vision, mm -hmm. right? And, and, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I'm always curious about is, you know... And, frankly, I thought this was 
missing it the is, 2017 mayoral race. Yeah. Well, and, and less so in the 2018 gubernatorial race, but even to an extent there. What is the Republican Party it was, for? It was, right, right. It, so it was certainly missing in the 2017 mayoral race. It, it's not enough. I mean, I'm running in a race, I'm not going to win. Let's be frank. It, it's, it's enough to have a few jokes at Bill de Blasio's expense. My really one vision is, is, is reforming the actual office I'm running for. Um, running for mayor, you can't do that. You can't. And, and, you know, misquoting police statistics to prove people, it doesn't, it doesn't help. And it doesn't make us look credible. Um, you can get very far when you have someone like Bill de Blasio knocking Bill de Blasio. Um, but you're right. It's always going to be harder, I think, for conservatives to, to um, formulate a vision of the, the future because, in essence, conservatism is the preservation of the status quo. And I don't mean that in any, any racial or, or whatever, whatever isms you, you want to throw at me. I mean that just that's the nature of, of the conservative mindset. Um, so, you know, or you want to reduce... Reduce government. Or you want to reduce government. You want to you want to expand you know personal liberty, uh, but when you're making a vision for a municipality, you know it, it does go back to the brass tacks of we just got to get the grass cut and we got to have a couple of people in the firehouse and they got to you know have gas in their truck. I mean, it, it, it's not it. Municipal elections are not always the place to shape a, a, a vision, but they're a place to to restore competency. And um, that's where I think in 2017 we may not have had the best candidate, um, you know, where, where someone like Bloomberg, I mean, again, very moderate Republican, but someone who could check the incompetence of Mayor de Blasio with the competence of X, Y, and Z. I think Paul Massey would, Paul have, been, Massey would, would, have, good, that, would have been yeah. a good candidate if he, if he had a little bit more of a, of a spine for a primary. Um, but that's how you beat that, that back. I think our bit better chance is statewide. I mean, it, it always has been. You know, um, I was uh, part of uh, Mark Molinaro's team, and uh, I, I did a lot of stumping for him. And uh, my vote on the SAFE Act is what kind of gives me, I don't know what you, what you even call it, an entree into some uh, circles in upstate New York, you know, that I'm not one of those crazy city people who voted uh, to take gun rights away. But as a result, I, I was stumping upstate for him. And, I mean, it is, it, it, it is a fundamentally different state than the part of the state, the city where the majority of New Yorkers live. Um, and it's an often undervalued part of the state when it comes to electoral politics. I think, you know, even at my own expense, I guess to some degree, the new chairman, Nick Langworthy, would do a better job by focusing on the county executive races, the you know, county legislative races, where we can dominate. I mean, we, we, hopefully we dominate like, like Boss Platt in 1898, you know, uh, upstate New York. Um, that would give us the power to turn out enough voters to win. Republicans have to get, you know, if Mark Molinaro got 30% of New York City and not 20% of New York City, he would have been the governor. Um, that's going to be always be a challenge of us, but that the mechanics of winning that race still always rely on a high turnout, highly motivated upstate New York. And you, it's interesting because you were talking about this before, about kind of uh, different uh, theories of how you build or rebuild the power party. Is it about building that kind of grassroots infrastructure county executive? Yeah, it, it certainly is. Or is it about having a charismatic candidate who brings people? No, I, I think I think when you're talking about off-year gubernatorial races, I think having the popular and some of them will be on the ballot, having the popular county exec and county legislative and assembly and senate races on the ballot the same day matters a great deal. I think it matters a tremendous amount. Um, you know, especially when we have a disadvantage here in New York City 
and that most of our races are really happening in, now in June. Uh, so the November race is oftentimes a sleeper. Uh, in, in, in some of the strongest, right, I mean, the, the stronger the Democratic voting bloc in an assembly district, the more likely that candidate doesn't have a Republican or any competition on November. So uh, having those competitive races upstate with, with good candidates has an impact on the gubernatorial race. You know, if Cuomo runs again, yeah, he's going to have a big war chest. I think that's the biggest problem Republicans face. It's not the love for Andrew Cuomo. You know, he, he is probably only outdone by Bill de Blasio and how much New Yorkers resent the governor. I mean, I, and I think part of that's a function of just being in office too long. Um, I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't, number one, I don't have a candidate. Part of, big part of the problem. But before you get to 2022, even though preparations for that need to basically already be, be starting, and one of those was the shift in the chair of the state party, right? Ed Cox mm -hmm. to Nick Langworthy. Um, maybe the party needed new leadership is, is something that, you know, hear from a lot of Republicans, whether they want to say it on the record or not, and, and plenty did, and obviously then it led to a change in leadership. But there, but the question is about going to someone upstate versus downstate and someone who is not a moderate, right? Yeah. I mean, is that is that how you resurrect the Republican Party in New York? It, don't you need leadership in the state party that can talk to can, you know, sort of be of and among the more conservatives no, no, yeah. and find the, the, the unaffiliated voters are going right. to make or break this thing, right? I think that the GOP under Cox, the, the, the failure was not to offer a viable alternative. Even if a lot of voters don't think that alternative is great, I think the, the bigger failure was, was not being um, the major opposition party in the state. When you talk about opposition to Cuomo, most often you, you're you and media. You're talking about his his left flank, and you're talking about the working family folks and uh, and 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 some labor unions. The GOP is is like third on the list of his his uh, you know kill list or whatever he calls it. I mean, he's a strange guy. I'm sure he has some weird you know weird pictures in his room or something with Nick Langworthy's face on it now, but. Well, to your point, it's probably Bill Lipton and not... Yeah, like fair, Langer, right, right, exactly. Right? Yeah. So bringing, bringing the state GOP as, as the opposition group so that disaffected people gravitate this way instead of that way I think is more important than hedging, hedging our opinion on any issue. Look, the, the party has to be... If you, if you speak to my, my state colleagues in Long Island, you know, while I used to get like the Oil Slick Award in the assembly from one of the environmental groups... Most of my Republican colleagues in Long Island had really very good environmental records. I mean, I think they're wrong, um, but this, these are issues that care, are, are grave. I mean, Joe Saladino, who is a strange guy, great guy, uh, I love him, but he used to rant about his plume, and no one knew what he was talking about. I mean, plume, what, I don't know what a plume is. Apparently it's some, you know, some bathymetrical water pattern that, that he, they really care about. This is the issue. You, know, you go to the South Shore State Island, it's police relations today, right? You go to... Massapequa, where he's now the supervisor, he won the election, it's the plume. And giving, the, 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 giving each locality or region of the state the autonomy to make these kind of, of sort of party direction decisions is something Nick Langworthy has to do. Um, and then the party's real question is going to be whether we go with an upstater for, for governor or a Long Islander. And I think there are good candidates... In, in both parts of the state. I think Lee Zeldin is someone who, who might be uh, a good candidate that people aren't talking about now. I mean, he, he has a tough congressional race. Um, 
why wouldn't he potentially run for governor? You know, maybe he survives this one after redistricting. Maybe he gets kicked out. So I mean, why why wouldn't he do it? I haven't spoke to him. It's not you know I don't have any inside information. It's a good, good float on this show here. No, it's, it's, but it, but it's it's true. I mean, we we have Mark Molinaro. We we have. But Molin so I watch that race extremely closely. Mm -hmm. Molinaro is is you know, admittedly couldn't say couldn't support Donald Trump for president. Yeah. But was so. You could just see him struggling. He didn't want to talk negatively about Trump. He couldn't really go full. He, he was just, he, he seemed like he was, you know, being so be, tortured all before, the time. Before I do any critique of Mark Molinaro, which is not off limits, uh -huh. and I will do yeah. it, I, I want to say, I think, I, I lived in Dutchess County for a long time, and I actually think his, his constituents and everyone are very lucky to have them. I would move back to Dutchess. Um, po He's very well liked, very well liked. Po Town ain't what it used to be. And, and, and Poughkeepsie and, and, and especially Northern Dutch is beautiful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think he didn't straddle the issue of Trump well. I, I think there is something to be said about, and this has always worked for me, just be pretty brutally honest about how you feel. If you don't like Trump, say it. If you like Trump, say it. And, and, and come with me. I mean, I mean Your party I, I, would let him say, I can't be associated with a guy that... I don't know if Molinaro thinks Trump's racist, but you know, you know, says these things, right. these inflammatory things. Many people believe he's racist. You know, your party would be okay with a, a moderate Republican as the standard bearer. I'm not saying, saying there, there, wouldn't, there wouldn't be an electoral cost to it. I'm just saying broadly, I think it makes a better case when you're just sort of brutally honest about and open about how you feel, rather than trying to hedge. It goes back to what I said about the person who tries to be pro-life and pro-choice, depending on the group. I mean, you, you just sound ridiculous. You just, do you like Trump? Yeah, look, if you ask me right now, on record, on, on, do you like Trump? I like him. I think, he's doing, I think he's doing an okay job. Can I tell you seven different things he should have tweeted differently? Sure. Can I tell you policies that I disagree with? Sure. But that doesn't mean I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid or, or going to shy away from saying I, I, I like President Trump, okay? So that decision about how to play... But, but, do, but do, you, do you think what I just said was more natural and more digestible to people in the public than Mark trying to straddle the issue? It depends how you straddle it. I mean, you know, but I, th I, do, I do agree with you that people respond to, let's hear what you really think, be authentic, lay it out there for us, tell us about your struggle with Trump. You know, I'm I mean, so he, authentic, he, I actually burped while I was saying that. It's <laughs> you know, very yeah, yeah. realistic. I thought that was great. So... Republicans running in New York State in 2020 are going to have to figure out how to deal with the Trump issue, and that's going sure. to be out there, and it's going to have an effect probably on outcomes of you know state races. As a Republican looking to help rebuild the party, what would be a good outcome in 2020 in terms of state? Was it realistic? Realistic. Well, there's Congress and four, there's the state Congress, Senate. Congress, four Senate, Senate seats. Four Senate seats. Win, win back four yeah, state I think Senate that would, seats. I think there's a realistic goal. Um, I think it's a realistic goal, and I think it's a possibility, and it still doesn't bring us to, to, to the promised land, but I think that's enough of, of, a, of a pendulum swinging back uh, and a check on sort of the, the uh, movement to the far left uh, that it would build a better mousetrap for at least two years in the state. I think, I think you'd have people like Andrea Stewart-Cousins saying, let's pump the brakes on some of the stuff that we're doing, uh, because it's clearly not playing well in, you know, in, in the Hudson Valley, for example. Um, you know, they, they, it's sad because they have really, in my opinion, really bright people in, in the Democratic Senate majority. And um, like someone like James Goofus, who is a personal friend, and, and I, you know, I, I like him very much personally. I disagree with him, obviously. Um, but but he, he sometimes gets overshadowed because he's just not so, uh, so far to the left that, that 
y'all in media pay a lot of attention to them. What about what about Congress? I mean, you you yeah, your district. It's, it's, it, Congress is going to be tough. I mean, you know, is Max Rose beatable? Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I mean, it, um, it, it's he's certainly beatable on, on the ground level, and he's certainly beatable in the metrics they consider in Washington as whether a race is beatable. And I, the, the resulting action of that is going to be is a, a lot of money on each side being spent. And I mean, he's he's really doing a, an incredible job raising money, and credit where credit is due. Um, it, it will be tough. It will be tough for whoever the Republican nominee is to beat him, but there's a chance. This forecast of, of best-case scenario winning four state Senate seats maybe beating Rose. There's obviously other congressional seats we could talk about, but they're not your district. Um, is you Do you think that Trump helps Republican candidates in 2020 or hurts in New York? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you look at a seat like the, the, the Collins seat after an indicted congressman might still be running. The Trump name helps him there, I mean, in, in, in western New York. I think uh, in the uh, Brindisi seat, having Trump on the ballot helps the person. I forget, forget the woman's name who's running. I don't think Claudia Tenney's running again. But in the Brindisi seat, the uh, Delgado seat, uh, having Trump on the ballot upstate, I think, does help. Because if you look at the Delgado seat, you know, you have a lot of union members in that, in that part of the state, a lot of uh, state workers. Um, the, the counterbalancing of voter turnout is Trump, and it's it's possible. Mm-hmm. I think the the following year when you have Cuomo on the top of the ticket, you know, even though he's so unpopular upstate, it's going to be tough to drive the turnout. Which is, like I said, the problem of of winning the gubernatorial election is is driving turnout upstate. So talk about the year in between twenty twenty one. Yeah, um, I heard something's happened in that year. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'll say it right now. If I win for public advocate. I am running for mayor. Don't ask. Don't just don't just just pack your bags and come on the ride with me because because your I, victory speech on election night will be your your decoration. I'm going to Gracie. I'm going to Gracie. If, if we somehow eke out uh, you know this uh-huh. incredible win, then then put me uh, put me on a list. So let's say that the situation in the city is more or less status quo ante. That like cr- there's no explosion in crime. Yep. The economy doesn't go off a cliff. Sure. We're basically where we are now. How does the Republican... Isn't it amazing, that, that, isn't it amazing that things are kind of okay for the most part in New York City and our mayor is so fundamentally unpopular? They're it's, better than okay. I mean, things there's are good. major like, problems. Things, right, right. But, but the, they're the, better than okay. I mean, the, the major the, problems are usually the issues and agencies that Bill de Blasio hasn't meddled in. I'll say it the third time. The, the grass is still getting cut in the park department. Right, we have a great parks commissioner. Things are happening. It's okay. Like, well, he's yeah. I mean, the city, as you have talked about, I mean, city. Cut services. a ri- Bill, if you're listening, <laughs> cut a damn ribbon. Make people remind that there are parts of your administration that are doing their job and doing it well. Like, good, good grief, Charlie Brown. But as Jared said, I mean, you know, crime is really low. The economy is really good. I mean, things like yeah. a lot of the big metrics are better. You know, better than okay. Uh, but he's still got huge problems, and you say, I mean, that's that's a key point, is that he's so much more unpopular right. than he should be, in part because he doesn't do some of those ribbon cuttings. But, and to the question... Fair. I mean, you can criti- obviously there's a critique of him. Why doesn't he do more of that? Why doesn't he take some of the credit? But on the other hand, there are politicians, obviously, that only do that, only cut ribbons. Oh, I know a few of them. And yeah. don't deliver yeah. on, you know, to whatever extent de Blasio gets some credit for the fact that some things in the city seem to be heading in the right direction. Um, does he get some credit for at least on a personal level, not sort of thirsting no, for no, he, that he, kind of credit? No, no. I, 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 I mean, politics is partially doing both things. It's, it's using your responsibility to govern, to, to do good for the people you represent. And, 
you know, part of it is political. And, and you know, taking a victory lap when things are okay is a big part of it. I mean, it, um, especially if you're not a lame duck that doesn't want to run for future office. You know, if you, if you have these delusions of you becoming president of the United States, if you're willing to go into unfriendly territory on Hannity, I give you credit for doing that. But it's a lot harder, it seems, for him to just show up to, you know, the, the opening of the beaches in Coney Island or something, just like, good grief, like, like give us a mayor. Right, he, give us the mayor back. He's okay. such an aberration, though. I mean, I think, you know, just it was this, you know, confluence of events. He ran a very good 2013 campaign, but confluence of events where you have someone in the office who doesn't necessarily like a lot of the parts of the job right. or embrace it and, you know, I think that's going to happen very, very rarely in the history of New York City, sure, right? Sure, sure. I mean, of course. Yeah. But that's the thing we have. Yes. And so, and that will be part and of the picture, too. But this, so, he'll so be gone. Today, pretend today is the yeah. picture 2021. How does a Republican run for mayor, given that? You don't have the idea of a crime crisis that we're I, I think I think Republicans have better opportunities uh, to win in the midterm, as evidenced by David Dinkins. Um, Republicans have better opportunities to win when it's not an open seat, when there's an incumbent mayor. Uh, and, you know, if I, if I had time on my side, and I'm not an old man, but, like, I would, I would focus our attention on the midterm race for whoever's going to win. There's going to be so much attention, so much public financing on the five or six or whoever many ends up being Democratic candidates that it will be very difficult for a Republican to win. Now, I say that with the full knowledge that I'll be out there probably supporting whoever we run, trying my best to get him or her elected, um, but it, it is an uphill race. It is an uphill race. When you have uh, an incumbent who's going to get beat up in a primary, and then you are the sole opposition person against them in the, in the uh, general, I think that's an easier, an easier race. And what is, and I know, you know this is not something you're sitting around right now thinking about, but what is the Republican pitch for leading New York City? It's improve services, reduce it, it, the size of government. It's a cost of living argument. Uh -huh. I mean, um, you know, I think when you leave Manhattan and I think when you leave Brownstone, Brooklyn, you realize that the affordability crisis of New Yorkers is something that a lot of people who don't live in, in say, rent-controlled units or don't live in NYCHA are facing, where it is just, it, it is untenable for them to make what they believe is a decent salary, right? I mean, people who own homes in Queens are not making minimum wage. They're, pro they're probably, the family's probably pulling in eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand dollars. They think it, it's, it's a good salary. And it's just not enough to actually afford to live in the homeowner, own, the owner-occupied neighborhoods of this city. Uh, I think the affordability is a, a motivator to get a Republican elected. And mm. what's the prescription for that? Yeah, what's the levers? I mean, are More cowbells. <laughs> Always. Um... Are there yeah, real mean, levers that you can pull? Is it, I mean, without? how many times does the city council pass things that make business more expensive and then complain about business being too expensive, and now we're going to pass another bill to somehow figure out why business is too expensive? I'll tell, I mean, if, if you think we should have a minimum wage, that's okay. If you're going to refuse to acknowledge that that impacts the cost of every single thing we eat, drink, purchase, consume in New York City, you're delusional. So, you know... It's it's tough because it is something that affects everyone, and it's an opening because it is something that affects everyone. When you look at how many, the small percentage of people that are affected by the minimum wage uh, raise versus how many people in New York City, it's 8.5 million, are affected by the high cost of living, I think it's an opening. 
So we've got about five more minutes here with City. I got time. I'm not. You know, I'm, this, this is false. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Well, we we have. Oh, this is, you know, <laughs> families. Well, we we will we will continue the interview that will air uh, for five or six more minutes, and then we can continue talking after and, and accompany to you to your uh, to your fundraiser. But um, we're talking with City Councilmember Joe Borelli from Staten Island, who is uh, running in the special election this November for public advocate. Um, I, I want to. Just come back a minute because I was I was heading here. Um, I'd kind of like to hear right now how you sort of explain the unflinching, or maybe it's flinching and we don't see it, Trump support, given what we've seen unfold. I mean, for me, and I, and I'm you know I'm pretty open about this. I, I see the you know the never Trumpers and or the the conservatives who've moved to that camp. And I totally understand what they're saying about the way he conducts himself, the language he uses. They might like the tax policy and the conservative judges, but they just can't support someone who has his values. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile that? Um, you know, there's because there's a part of me that that um, I, I guess in my brain I can separate the two. You know, and in my brain. Um, I don't really care about what people on the far left or on the far right who never Trumpers are actually say about me. Um, so when I've disagreed with the president on both policy and on personality, I, I'm not someone who toes the line. I mean, they, they have not asked me to be on the advisory board for 2020, um, which is the, the, the name of the surrogate network they have and go out and talk with the president, be, probably because I, I don't toe the line all the time. I think you measure every president on the balance of whether they're doing good or bad. I think there isn't really an argument to be made that the economy here in New York is better uh, because of some fiscal policy that, that comes from the White House. Uh, I think uh, there's arguments on foreign policy. There's arguments on domestic policy. There's arguments on But I'm not talking everything. about yeah, you know, I'm I'm saying, ta- So on balance, a, a lot of us just can ignore the things we disagree with. A lot of us think that some of the things that, that you personally might find offensive, we find funny. And I'm not, you know, I'm not like, uh, we're not going to go tweet by tweet, but there are some that other people have been so upset about where I just thought they were funny or, or they, were, they were, you know, sure, a clever way some, of attacking. Can you look at this person and say, I'm okay saying this is the, this is the sort of moral leader of our country? You, you know, you can say to kids like, "Yeah, this is this is the president we should look up to," or or you just can't say that, but you can say I like some of his policies. No, I mean, you know, I I, I was in the Obama Oval Office and I didn't agree with everything, and to me there is still something about the office of the president that that I, I don't mind telling my kids or that this is a president we're going to go to the Easter egg roll and it's going to be great. I mean, I'm not I'm not personally afraid of of that. Um, so 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 no, I mean just just um, I'm I'm not as uh, I'm also I'm also not as in general as offended as most people on most things. But he's you you're not really the target right. But you're not really the target audience. You you can't you can't sort of empathize with the people who are offended. No, I no, I can. I mean, and you know, I, I, the other part is, is that a lot of people in the demographic that like President Trump are also sick of the blatant hypocrisy of how you and media treat him compared to how you treated President Obama, who did 
many of the same exact things. Uh, and this is everything from, you know, when, you, when he meets with a dictator, how offended everyone is. No one was offended when President Obama met with uh, President Duterte of the Fili of, of, of Philippines or whoever, right? President Trump was offended. No, <laughs> but, Trump but, was offended but what I'm saying is it, it, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a level of, of treatment that, like, we, like, a lot of us just don't, we're just sick of it. Like, we're, si we're sick of being called racists. Like, do you know how many times a dad get called a racist? Like, it, it's almost, like, mind-numbing. And I don't think you, you, you like, uh, I'm not going to play the game of uh, call people of color and vouch for me, but I don't think most of my colleagues have a problem working with me or I've ever done anything intentionally to, to, to offend them or anything like that. Um, but it's so just, like, it's almost entrenching on our side when you get called deplorable and a racist and, you, and, and you're every ism imaginable because you have a difference of opinion, um, that it almost entrenches you into that bubble. Well. If they think you support a racist to be president of the United States, right. they might not think you're personally racist. Some no, might. It's fair, but fair Some point. Some might. It's a fair point. I'm just saying that that for a lot of people, it's almost entrenching that that you know they're not the only part of the us versus them mentality. The left is also equally part of that mentality in in the grenades that they throw, and overall, that has an entrenching effect on probably both sides. I mean, you know, when you look at things that the president's proposing in terms of fiscal policy. He's not proposing anything outside of the box. You know, but, but, but now because of just the personalities of both sides, it's almost impossible for either side to give an inch. And I think that echoes down to the, to the public. And yeah, you do, you do see people very, very, very dug into their foxhole on each side. Do you think you've benefited from white privilege? Um, look, I, I think certainly there are people who grew up in, in different parts of the city, people who grew up uh, as different races, who had less advantages th than I did. Um, but I, I, don't think, I don't think that, that we need to go to the level of Chancellor Carranza by starting with the assumption that all white people have, or all people in general, have this implicit bias, and we have to remind them that they are incapable of judging people of color differently than uh, the same as people who are white, for argument's sake. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I, I don't, I've never lived a day in the shoes of a black woman, for example, so I don't know how the actions or things in my life would have been different. And I, I'm not saying that to, to be dismissive. I, I don't know. I mean, um, but I'm okay saying that it's probably easier to grow up um, in my life than the life of many others. We just got a final minute here. Um, you got deep. I know. We well, deep, I, you know yeah, we could keep going for hours. Um, just, I guess, a, a closing thought to sort of pull the the loops together. Your prescription for Republicans in New York are there three things that Republicans need to do moving forward from this place that led to Nick Langworthy, you know, taking over his chair to rebuild, revitalize, I can't remember what the he, third he gave you three. He gave you yeah, three things. Rebuild, revitalize. Something. Yeah, but those, well, those are all just slogans. Yeah. I mean, there's, he talks about voter registration. Uh, are, there, are there a couple other things, other things that have to be clear? Yeah, think, are there things that have to be done? We have to run genuine races in areas where, um, you know, we're not winning an assembly seat in central Brooklyn. Um, but Queens BP, you know, that's a seat where Republicans have not ran uh, credibly uh, in the past. Um, I think 
identifying those seats where we can run a good race, where it's worth it to have a Republican on the ballot, uh, is one of the things that, that we could certainly do. Because the net effect is having then a, 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 a base of voters in different parts of the state now to turn out for a gubernatorial or potentially a mayoral. That, that's probably the most important. You mentioned Lee Zeldin. Any other New Yorkers you think should run for either mayor or governor in the next election? Mayor stuff. I, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this for a while. I mean, I, I don't have an answer on mayor, but I think, I think Mark, uh, if, he, if he survives this uh, re-election effort, he, he has a tough race. I mean, the price of running against Andrew Cuomo is that he comes, comes after you. Um, in a weird way, I respect his vindictiveness. You know, actually, like, uh, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very Sicilian of him. Um, Cuomo is not Molinaro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if, I think Mark would be a, a good candidate again. Um, uh, you know, I mean, the bottom line here is the Republican Party needs a bench. The Republican Party needs uh, someone in the batter's box, someone who could hit home runs. You know, the uh, the, the bench is actually quite extensive. I mean, there's, there's over a hundred county execs and members of the legislature um, who, who, in theory, could could be a, a, a gubernatorial candidate. Um, you know, finding the star is going to be the hard one. You know, figuring out who to put first in the, in the batting order is the tough, right, right. tough call. Councilmember Joe Borelli, thanks for the time.